Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, welcome back to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham and Bose, helping you stay connected. Right, as British racing drivers go, my next guest is one of the most successful. Twice British touring car champion, he holds the record for the most overall race wins in the BTCC. Have you guessed it? I am, of course, talking about Jason Plato. He is full of energy and enthusiasm and has funny anecdotes coming out of his ears. So, he's the perfect guest for In The Pink. Here he is, Mr. Jason Plato. So, how are you? How have you been coping? I see you're sporting a quite magnificent Father Christmas beard. Do you know what? It is just around the corner, isn't it? I'm getting ready now, ho, 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 and all that sort of stuff. Do you know, I've never, ever grown facial hair. And I always had a strange thing in my head that as soon as you have facial hair, you're hiding behind a bush. Do you know what I mean? It's all a slippery slope. Yeah, metaphorically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I just couldn't be asked to shave. Because we were bolted down at home, and do you know what? It started going off. Oh, hello! Oh. And then Soph went. Oh, I quite like that. So, of course, now I'm feeding off all this positive energy. And I must admit, I'm starting to quite like it actually. And I think I might keep it. I think I might keep it. I think you should. Although I did wake up this morning, and you know how to be knocked down a peg or two. But when I was in the shower, like I'm washing the back of my hair, I'm thinking that feels a bit bloody weird. Just feels like all a bit. A bit wiry, almost like I've got something stuck in it. So I'm like, sh- like shampooed it again. I'm like, no, it's still there. And then I went, went, said, said, so what, can you have a look? And she got, oh my God, it, there's like a white patch. <laughs> and it's gone proper white. And obviously white hair's wiry. And, I, and for the first time ever, so it's obviously grown in the night. I mean, it's there now, I can feel it, it's weird. See, I've actually read somewhere that if you get a little patch of grey or white hair, it's stress-related, if there's just one area. I mean, I know, oh, no, it's a lovely look, it's going. But you've got it's the not whole... grey either, it's not grey, it's, it's chrome. Stop <laughs> 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 uh, So, yeah, do you know what? I've not had haircutting, God knows, and I'm looking at you, and you, and you look great on it. I'm just going to let it all go. Yeah, do, listen, I feel like it's you, 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 you're something of the Damon Hill about you, the salt and pepper look. Because I've told him for years he looks like a curious badger. 
And I think you could... <laughs> Do you know what? I, uh, I'm really very fond of Damon, actually. And we go out on this Rat Pack lunch, at which uh, just before Christmas, which I'm not an original member of the Rat Pack, but I've been kind of adopted in. And there's, I mean, there's like 15 of us, and it, they're all like proper, proper blokes, you know. And, and I always gravitate to sit next to, to Damon. And, and uh, you know, I, I love him to bits. He's great. And I must admit, when he started to sharpen up a little bit, you know, he went through that long-haired thing. So he sharpened up. Oh, I went, he's a very fine-looking man. He's very distinguished, isn't he? Oh, yeah. And that's, and that's the look I'm after. <laughs> He's got great views as well that go with it. I always say to him, he's not your typical F1 driver. He's a bit of a hippie, he likes surfing, playing the guitar. He's got very liberal views about the world. He loves a deep and meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I would say he's, he's the antithesis, actually. He's, he's, yeah. he's, he's a you know, unique person of one. I don't know any other driver that is as mellow and as reflective. And like you said, you know, quite philosophical, quite deep but actually really learned, you know, he's well read. And yeah, I mean, he's, he's great. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a fine man. He is. Well, this podcast is not about Damon. It is about you. So let's talk about you. And I'm going to, for the sake of our listeners, reflect on your career stats, which by the way, kind of blew my tiny mind. Oh, they're pretty average. Come on. <laughs> 599 races. 97 wins nearly uh, 97 98 depending on how you do the maths i'm sticking with 98 okay let's go with 98 98 yeah. i like being corrected for an extra one podiums 233 if you say i mean it's a lot 51 so listen tell me how that makes you feel does it make you feel very proud or just very old uh well, actually, here's an interesting thing. The numbers, actually, until a few years ago, didn't really mean anything because it was still work in progress. And, it, you know, I never saw an end to it. So I never saw, I never saw a, a target because I was still, you know, year in, year out, doing the numbers, winning races. And it was my old man actually came across something because you know what they're like. Um, he found something about me on the internet and it was some driver's database thing, which some, some fruitcake has added up all of the wins of every British driver since records began. And if they're international status events, uh, so, uh, you know, Formula Renault upwards, karting doesn't count. And he basically found out that since records began, I was number one at the winners list. And... And uh, Lewis was number two, and I was a good 10 in front of him. And the, and the little stinker, which I'm not at all upset about because he's a ledge, uh, just recently overtook me. And it was only then when I, when I saw it, and I went, good Lord, that's pretty cool. And then you look down, and you see Mansell, way down. But, you know, it, we do lots of races. So, but yeah, I get, I, you know, I'm pleased, I'm proud, you know. I've only had a couple of rough years. Most of the time I'm in the mix and competitive. And it's only because I love it. You know, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm, I think it's probably fair to say I'm slightly autistic in that, you know, I'm driven and focused and nothing else matters by and large. So getting up every day to, to, to try and, you know, win races and be fast just is what, is what I do, is what I do. Um, but yeah, it's a nice, it's, you know, it's a nice thing, and it's, it, you know, 
I don't know about your kids, but my girls are not interested in the slightest in what I do. And it's like, ah, are you going to be, oh, you're so you'd be home late on a Sunday night. I mean, not how you done, they're just not interested. So, but actually, they did start to get a little bit of interest. And like, oh, you're, you're not bad, bad at that, Dad. And that's a great feeling. Do you know what I mean? Of course. What else do you do it for? Um, now, you, you use the term autistic there, and I know it's not one that you would loosely throw around because your own daughter's autistic, and I know some of your closest friends are. We'll come to them later. Do you think you are on the spectrum? Do you think that that is part of your, your psychological makeup that makes you determined to win? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And, um, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my friends, not, not, you know, across all walks of life, whether it be, you know, engineers in motorsport, where, where, where there'll be some drivers that I've formed some friendships with. And I try not to make great friends with drivers because everyone's all two-faced and try to have you over. But, all, you know, all different walks of life, whether they be businessmen or, or, or chefs or whatever they do, most of them, the, the go-getter successful ones are a bit on the spectrum. And I honestly think, I, th I think in an individual world, and motor racing is, even though they, you know, it's, it's a team thing, and, and golfers, business people, chefs, because that's an individual thing really, I think it, it, it provided you, you haven't got too many leaves on the tree, I think it can be a help because it does give you an insane focus Almost, um, or almost a focus that isn't quite normal, and that people that are perhaps on the spectrum would just get a bit bored with it. And you know, if you think of the great aerodynamicists, and I mean, how, how do they look at little bits of racing cars for months, trying to find something? That's a that's a gift. But that's not neurotypical. And, and I see it across all different walks of life. So, yeah, I mean, you know, my oldest is high-functioning autistic in that she's got, you know, a few leaves on the tree. But definitely, you know, there are some, I see some similarities between me and her in many ways, actually. Many ways. Yeah. Let's take a look back at your childhood. You are born in Oxford. Tell us about it. Was, it. was it a happy one? Was it a busy one? Close to your family? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I was born in Oxford, but I only spent like four years of my life there. And then, and then we went up to the northeast in Newcastle, where my dad was in the motor train. And do you know what? I'm an only child. My childhood was good, actually. I had a brilliant time. Um, you know, I, I went to quite a strict, boys-only, traditional, kind of traddy, punchy, sporty school. And I think had I not had that, I would have most certainly gone off the rails. I'm absolutely convinced of that. But, you know, my childhood was, was, was karting. And, you know, it was epic. You know, we, we, we literally lived in a little black van. Me and my mum, my dad and the dog, Cat Castrol. And we literally, every weekend, I mean, I started karting in 1980, I would say from nine, late eighties onwards until nine, until eighty six, eighty seven, we were carting nearly every weekend. So we were never at home. We were, you know, we, we'd pack the van up on a Thursday night. I'd get permission. What once it got serious on a Friday, we'd, we'd scoot. I'd be off school. My mum was kind of like team nurse, caterer, um, 
person that would diffuse arguments between me and my dad, who was my engineer mechanic, and it was just brilliant. You know, we travelled, we travelled around Europe. I mean, it was it was wonderful, really great. It was our little team, and the other thing is, we were with a community where all the others were just the same. They all had their mums and dads there, and they were travelling around the UK. So it was this amazing, even though it's competitive, it was this amazing little group of like-minded bunch of people. I mean, it was it was fantastic. I mean, I'm, I have many, many fond memories of it. And miss it, actually. I do miss it. And who was the driving force behind that? Was it your mum, your dad, or you? Um... Well, originally, because my old man was in the motor trade, you know, he, he uh, you know, once the car team started to kick off in, in you know, 1980, he was what you would call now the dealer principal of a BMW dealership. So he'd come around with different cars all the time. And I love cars. And I can remember going to the Grand Prix at Silverstone in 77 or 6. Um, so motorsport was a thing. You know, it was just, you know, I can remember sat in his lap when back when Bathurst came around and we would sit in t- together and watch it. And he took a, 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 a racing car and he was a bad debt. Someone owed him a couple hundred quid, couldn't pay him. They were one of his mates. He went, look, I'll have that bet. And it was, it, it lived at the, ga- the garage. And on a Sunday when the petrol pumps were shut in those days, they had chains of, across the in and out, we'd, you know, drive, or actually him and his sales manager, and his service man manager would mess around on a weekend driving around the pe- petrol pumps. And then I got my eyes on it and said, Oh, can, can I have a go? And off it went. And within a, you know, within a few, I guess, weeks, months, we'd found he'd befriended uh, the guy who owned uh, Time Car Auctions, well, which was not far from our house. So you can imagine if you got a car auction, you got a massive car park. And when the car auction's not on, it's empty. And we became very friendly with a local copper because we were making so much noise. Every night we were there, he'd turn up half an hour and go, can you just... So we'd get, you know, 45 minutes or something like that before we were kicked off. And then we joined, you know, we found the local circuit, joined the club and started racing. And, you know, my first year was 1980. And, I mean, I can remember going to my first ever race meeting to sign up to the club. And they said, look, what number do you want? as your club championship number. And, and I said, well, what can I have? He said, well, there's a list. <laughs> and I, I looked, I said, well, I'm number one then. He said, oh, you can't have that. That's for the winner. I said, well, I, 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 and I looked down and number six was the next one. I thought, I'll have six. And that became my lucky number. And I got number one at the end of the year because we won the club championship. And it was great. It was great. And I still keep in contact with some of the old Carters to this day. You know, we still keep in co- contact. Wonderful times, really great. I can't imagine how proud your parents are of you. When you think about reflecting on those days, if anyone had told them back in 1980, you'd go on to have this this huge success, nearly 100 career wins. They must be bursting with pride. Yeah, and they love it. You know, they've not... I mean, I can count on less than one hand, actually, how many races over the years they've missed. So if you think how many I've done, you know, I can remember being at Bathurst in for the big race uh, in October. Maybe it was 2004, something like that. And then, you know, on the Thursday was, because it's like a week-long event then, on the Thursday, I was walking down the pit lane, and I'm like, what, what, what are you doing? Well, we just thought we'd come out and have a look. <laughs> so they love it. And I can remember, you know, when I got my first drive, 
my first proper drive with Williams in 97 as a bit of a thank you for all the support. I mean, you know, they remortgage houses and all sorts of stuff. So I, I booked them a two-week holiday, like a proper deluxe, five-star deluxe in the Seychelles. And it just happened to be it was over Knockhill weekend. And I gave this to my mum and dad. like, oh, great. And my mum piped and went, you have to change the dates. I said, mother, it's, it's Scotland. It's Knockhill. You've been there loads of times. <laughs> no, you have to change the dates. And guess what? I have to change the dates. <laughs> they, were, they were not going to go because they were going to miss a race. But yeah, they love it. They're still around, you know, they're still, they come to all the races now. They love it. The world continues to evolve and the new norm isn't fully clear yet. But what does remain constant is the core message from our friends at Bose. Stay calm, stay centred and stay connected. Communication is key in everything we do and goes a long way to nurturing both ourselves and our relationships with others. So continue to talk about what matters to you. And don't be afraid to block out unhelpful noise or indeed to embrace silence because doing both can be great. Some of the ways we work will have changed forever. Embrace that. Make those new ways work for you. Shape the new norm to suit you. Feel more, do more, be more with Bose. Um, now, you obviously um, dipped your toe, well, more than dipped your toe. You were very good indeed, Formula 3. Um, but am I right? Is it fair to say that... Um, you were very good, but didn't have enough money and had to transition away from single-seaters because you couldn't afford it. Uh, yeah, and that's a, that's a common story back then. Um, yeah, I just didn't have the budget, didn't have the backing, um, which ultimately is, is my fault. You know, I, I'm a marmite character. I'm a bit outspoken. Uh, that probably didn't help. Um, what, you mean in terms of well, no, just in terms of the industry, in terms of the industry, you know, if there was something that was a bit more clean cut and was, you know, would say the right things at the right time and always be thinking about being political and stuff, then, you know, they, they might be slightly ahead of me in terms of it came down to two drivers who didn't have the right budget. Who would they pick? And, and I'd pick the character. Well, well, me too, thanks. Um, but ultimately, if I'm really honest now, looking back, Whilst, you know, I, you know, some great things were said about me and I know I was quick, in all honesty, I don't think it would have lasted because I don't think I had the right mentality um, in terms of, you know, the discipline to go to the gym and to work on fitness and to not have fun. Uh, I just don't think I would have, I would have lasted. I, you know, I would have been quick, but I just wouldn't have been, you know, Schumacher-esque and, and you needed to be like that uh, so, so I think actually I wouldn't have made it Is there any regret with you though that you couldn't sort of have a word with yourself and, and, and improve your discipline as you as you put it uh, Yeah I guess so you know I've thought about that a lot over the years so yes but but ultimately that's not me do you, do you know what I mean and, and, and and uh, I think had I completely changed myself, even, you know, and I guess people might be thinking, well, gosh, you know, it's the most important thing in your life. It is the most important thing in my life. But you've got to be true to yourself. And, and um, 
I would have been sussed out. You know, I, I just would have been sussed out because you know something exciting would, would have been going off over there, and I've got to go to the gym and do this, and I'm, I just wouldn't have been. Yeah, and, and now do I regret? No, no, I don't actually because I, I know it, it. I just don't think it would have worked. Yeah. Uh, and also having driven against you know true greats like Schumacher, you know I raced against him in karting, and you know more often than not we we were as quick. But there were these days, and there wasn't many of those days back then. Not I followed when he got into cars, where he was just better. He was just quicker, you know, a little bit. But he he just stood out, and I think that's the level. Unless you're at that level. Yeah. Uh, then you're not, you know, you're you're never going to be a, a great like Schumacher is, and, and like you know, like Hamilton is, like like Alonso is, like Vettel is, you know, Senna, you know, they're a bit special, them boys. They're a bit special. And as much as we 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 might in our own, you know, in our own lunchtime, pretend that we're at that level. Very few of us are. It's interesting though, isn't it? It's that, that debate about how far talent alone can take you. Because at some point, application has to kick in and you have to have just this unflinching determination. At, sacrifice all else, you know. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I subscribe to that. I, su- I really do subscribe to that. But there, there's another level. Yeah. And I feel like you've got it. I mean, for goodness sake, you wouldn't have won as much as you had. Um, you can't obviously have any regrets because your career has been incredible and continues to be. That's another question I want to ask you. Well, we'll come to that later, but let me just throw back to that debut that you touched on in 97. You, you put it on pole at Donington Park. What was that feeling like? Uh, uh, do you know what? It was, it was life-changing, actually, because um, you know, it was a struggle to get that drive. And, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say, you know, I probably put quite a lot of people's noses out of joint by, you know, the bullish way I went about it. And then, as it turned out, um, you know, I was driving for the best team in the business with, with the best car. The 97 Williams Renault was the best car. And I had the best, you know, my teammate was the best driver, best touring car driver in the world at that point. Um, but it got me out the shop window. And, you know, without, I mean, William has invested a lot of effort and time and, and, and testing and kit and resource and in, in me during that winter period to lean up to, you know, leading up to my debut. And, you know, the level of commitment from them to me to, to, to help me, the, the amount of testing we did and money, you know, I felt more at home in the race car than I did in my own bed. And ultimately that paid off because I, I was, you know, my confidence had come up. I felt good about where I was with my engineer. I had a good understanding of the car. I knew what I, what I wanted from it. And it just all worked. And you know what? That I, I was, because of my character, I was prime candidate with targets all over me to, to get it wrong and then be just shot down. And do you know what? The first, well, the first two rat, rat races, I got three poles in a row. And that got me out of the wind window. Everyone went, fair play. He, des- he deserves that seat. Um, but actually, that, whilst that was great, it did, it did kind of make me walk a little bit higher than I should have been. 
at that period of time. I had a bit too much of a spring in my step. And, uh, and then Alan came back and he was just a bit quicker. And it took me until midway through the year to work out what it was. But it was, you know, I started to make a few mistakes, started to tighten up a bit. Um, but yeah, it was a defining moment in my career because I worked with the very best. And, you know, I got pulled in quite a few times by Frank and Patrick and said, look, we've seen all this before. You've got to knuckle down because actually he's starting to get ahead. And, and you know, it was, it, was, it was fantastic. They taught me a lot. And, and so did Alan, actually. I mean, I'm deeply indebted to, to all of them there, down there. They're great people. So is it about having the right people around you, specifically you, Jason Plato, in order to get the best out of you? Do, do, you need other people around you to help you raise your game. Certainly then, yes. Now, no, and hasn't been, you know, hasn't been like that probably... Uh, probably in you know once we got into 2001 onwards you know I, I, I knew what what switches I should turn on and what I shouldn't and I'd sussed it out by then but in the early days yeah I mean I was I needed a bit of guidance that's for sure but in terms of an engineer it's very important to get a, a, an engineer that knows what you want what you like understand your language and uh you know can read you uh that that's that's super important because in, in you know in the modern touring car world we don't have a long time uh from from the first test at a race meeting is we only get two 45 minute sessions on a saturday first thing in the morning just before lunch and then bang we're qualifying in the afternoon so there's not a lot of time to crunch data, but also during the race weekend, there's three races. More often than not, there's repairs and damage to fix on cars. So, you know, we don't have a lot of time to just sit and crunch through the data like they do in, in you know, F1. So, you know, that the relationship between an engineer and a driver is really key. And if they, if they, in, if they know what what you're talking about um and they can read that very quickly and they're good at their job then actually they can make you know they they, they, they can make, make my, my 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 light shine a bit brighter than it perhaps should be so yeah you do you do rely on some very clever people and so you took the title in 2001 and then you left the series briefly well i say briefly a couple of years why did you do that? Why did you leave and why did you do I, that? I didn't want to. I'd fallen out with, um, yeah, 2000. When I joined Vauxhall in 2000. And because of the existing deal which was in place, I was, I, you know, the, the only deal with them was, look, you, you're playing second, fifth, able to, to Ivan um, Muller. And I said, okay, that's fine. I, I don't mind doing it for a year, but 2001, all bets are off. It's you know, it's even Stevens, and even it. But but if it gets to the point in the year where I am behind, I'll support him. But it starts off the same. And you know, in two thousand and in two thousand, my first year at Thruxton, I was leading the race, was leading the championship. Evan was behind, and they called me over and they said, "Let him pass." I'm like, "Hold on, this is race. This is event two. What's going on?" And it just got worse and worse and worse. And then 2001 
came and, you know, me and him were the quickest out there. It was an internal battle, both worked strides of Vauxhall. And it just got really nasty. And, and you know, this team was split down the mid-middle. I'd signed a two-year deal of Amazon at three years, so he was there for 2002. There's no way we're going to work together. So effectively, I, you know, I won the chat championship and got fired. It often strikes me that politics does play far too big a role in, in racing. And actually, if it was just about pure pace, we could have seen some very different superstars emerge in every form of motorsport. Yeah, but, you know, but politics is part of it. And, um, uh, you know, you have, to, you have to play the game and you, and, and you have to, you know, I, I always try and play a straight bat to start with. But if, if, if you know, some curveballs come back and, and the, the rules change, of course, you have to adapt. And, and that's what I was, you know, I mentioned earlier about being friends with drivers. It just doesn't sit right with me because everyone's out to knife you in the back. And I reckon over the years, you know, I, I'm good friends with James Thompson, kind of like-minded spirits, I guess. You know, he was his his career in touring cars had just started before minded, and we were doing great, earned a few quid, loved to go out and have a have, have a laugh. But you know, I get on really well with Fabrizio Giovinardi, who, who I rate enormously, and that's probably about it. That I would class as true friends, actually. Maybe Rob Collard. Uh, but I'm fine with that because, you know, as you get older, friendships are important, but they've got to be real and genuine. And, um, you know, you only need four or five really good mates. Mm. Yeah, I've got that. And actually, I think that just from talking to others like you, compartmentalising your life is quite a, an interesting and, and useful way to get to where you want to. And actually sometimes keeping the friendship separate from what you're trying to do with your career can be helpful. Um, is it my imagination or did you drive for a lot of different teams or is that commonplace in touring cars? Um, I mean, yes, it's commonplace, but because I've been doing it for so long, you know, mm. m m most of my deals were multiple year deals. I mean, I, you know, I was at Williams for three years then Vauxhall for two. And then I managed to get Sayat engage with motorsport and, and, and help bring them in and, and was with them for, for five years. And then at the uh, end of 2008, where, when the financial crash was, they pulled down. I mean, I had another two years left on my deal. And then it was like, Jesus Christ, what do we do now? And then managed to entice Chevrolet in, was with them for two or three years, and then went to, to MG for three years. We do then, and then got the Subaru thing involved and was there for three or four years. So, yes, I've been with a lot, lot of teams, but generally they've been multi-year deals, uh, and, and that's the way I like it to be. And it's it is seriously impressive that you are still at the sharp end, at the grand old age of fifty-one. Are you fifty-one or fifty-two? Ah, fifty-two! But bloody hell, that's impressive. I mean, um. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Does, does touring cars lend itself to old age pensioners driving or is that? <laughs> no, do you know what? I honestly think it does, Nats, to a certain degree. Really? Why? Well, A, because the way it's evolved, that the testing is, is very limited. We're not allowed to do it. So having an, a, you know, a good knowledge uh, pays dividends. And also there's a thing, there's a thing, you know, they're predominantly front-wheel drive cars. They're, they're not very kind on tyres. So tyre management over the course of the weekend is very important. And that's something you just have to learn. And that only comes with experience. Uh, and then there's the racecraft. You know, it's very easy to get caught up in chunks. And over the over the years, you 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 just almost develop a almost like another sense where you you know when to when to roll with a punch, when to back out, when just to just play play it. Uh, and that I think if you're a bit eager and a bit young, and I remember when I was, you got into a few scrapes, and actually that then doesn't yield a good result at the end of the year. And the other thing is, it's not. I mean, yes, it is physical, but we're not fully massive G. You know, the only, and the races are relatively short. They're 40, 45 minutes long. All right, we do three in a day. But the big thing is, they're bloody hot inside. And I've never suffered with heat. And that's probably why, it's, why it's, I'm still okay at 52. And, you know, I watch some of the young lads get out, and they're like lobsters. And I think some people are okay with heat and some people aren't. And fortunately, touch wood, I've been all right with it. Um, so, yeah, I think it does lend itself to pensioners. Yeah. Um, from the things that you've said, you seem to be very commercially savvy. You know, you've brought big brands in to the sport and, and work with them. And actually, without embarrassing you, um, someone I spoke to before talking to you today described you as one of the most intelligent people in the business certainly one of the sharpest operators in motorsport how aware are you i know you're blushing now where, where do i send the check i know <laughs> very nice isn't it but, but how kind of aware are you of um just being the importance of working with and developing these relationships to make the the the, the team the car work for you because there's clearly elements of the politics and the industry that you don't like and don't want to conform to. There's others that you're clearly very naturally gifted at. You know, you're very good with people. 
and you're, you're pretty self-deprecating. I mean, you write a book, for God's sake, uh, how not to be, well, hang on, how not to be a professional racing driver. And yet you tick a lot of boxes in, in, in actually creating what's been an incredible career. And that's not just about being behind the wheel of a car. Uh, no, and that was a very strategic decision. Uh, and um, it's, do you know what? I, I've driven against some really epic drivers. Some were better than me. And they didn't make it because they just weren't sharp enough. They didn't work hard enough behind the scenes. They didn't get their bum in the car. They weren't regular getting sponsors. And, and, and actually a lot of drivers, uh, certainly, you know, in... in, in my time weren't very good at that and and um i quite enjoy it actually you know i'm i like business i like selling stuff you know i, I like going after a deal um and i and i and, and it was i'll tell you when it was it was when super touring ended and when my Vauxhall deal went, went and i got sacked that those were kind of the last time um, I just drove a racing car and did bugger all else until they said, right, go there, do this, do this PR. I wasn't very proactive. And then the industry changed a little bit and that the big budgets um, fell away. And, you know, I was without a drive. <clears throat> you know, I got fired from Vauxhall at the end of 2001. And uh, I wanted to try and go to NASCAR. I went over there to have a little look at that. And, and I just, I loved what I saw, but I just couldn't break in. That didn't have the commercial deals. And then I started to call SEAT and realized that if I could make myself the epicenter of their, of their marketing, uh, the, you know, their mix, their marketing mix, and could get everything working around the motorsport, and I could position myself in the middle of it all, then actually I became much more valuable to the program than me just being a driver. And then, of course, then you then get the marketing people around you. You then get the media people around you. You then get, you know, all different commercial aspects of the business, the fleet department. You're then in the system and you're, you're in it, not just as a driver, which is, you know, appealing to a very small section of that business. You're then across all of it. And you become pretty indispensable. And that's certainly what happened at SEAT. And probably had they been in... had you know, the financial crash of 08 not happened, I, I could probably still be there now. And, you know, that was a valuable lesson. And it was work in progress. It was evolving. I was learning as I was going along. I thought, Jesus Christ, it, it, it's different now. And I just made sure that, you know, I was trying to be commercially minded and bring in sponsorship deals, not, not, not necessarily for me, but for the team and to do media-style deals. I remember I put together a deal with TalkSport Radio where, you know, I would go down or do it remotely. And I put together a, a package where, say it would sponsor the show, would give away a load of goodies, which I would review. And they had to then, you know, the viewers had to, had to, to call in and guess what was in, what was in the boot of loot of the, of the say, you know, whatever it was at that point. It was the, uh, what was it? I forget which car it was now. The say it, lay, lay on. But the value that that created, it didn't cost say it very much, but they got tenfold back in media, you know, media time, which they then could leverage with their sponsors, 
And that's when I started to get into this, this whole mud sport marketing. I loved it. And I was the only one doing it at my le- 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 level. And, you know, I guess there's still a lot of F1 drivers who don't even get involved in that. But I loved it. And do you know what? That's the one thing which has kept me in a race car because I could go out and put deals together. You know, I, I got Chevrolet in, involved, really, although Ray Malik definitely helped. But we managed to get Chevrolet UK. MG was totally down to me and my business partner, Heidi. Um, likewise, Subaru. Uh, and Seat, you know, and I'm really proud of that, really proud of bringing in manufacturers. And also, you know, big spots. Once we've got Tesco into, into motorsport, you know, we put together this KX Academy with it, which is a, a, you know, a Red Bull energy style drink, but a Tesco owned brand. Well, we supported young up and coming drivers and put serious money in their pocket and then did workshops with them on a monthly basis to teach them about marketing, uh, teach them how to speak to cameras, teach them how to play the media. You know, and a lot of them couldn't operate and write a spreadsheet. Come on, guys. And, and we put this academy up and we, we told them, you know, a few of them are doing rather well now. And that, I love that. I love that. I'll just pick you up on that one phrase, though, play the media. Please don't play us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, occasionally we do, and we've got to, don't we? <laughs> I'm joking. Um, i tell you what, what is interesting about all of that is that it, none of it was at the expense of winning because that some people that would be for some people that would be a distraction from what they're there to do which is to drive a car race a car and win but you've always had this winning mentality just tell us about that where does that come from oh yeah i think i'm just i'm, I'm made that's my makeup you know, I never, uh, obviously, you know, I've got to give credit to mum and dad and, and that, you know, I was brought up, uh, you know, th- th- this, this, and it's quoted a lot nowadays, you know, it's, it's, it's the taking part that counts. Utter bullshit. Winning is all that matters. If you do something, you do it to win. Unless, of course, you're doing something like, you know, the village is pushing a rowing boat down the Thames to, generate a bit of cash or whatever that's different but if it's competitive you go there to win okay so i'll throw it back at you if you don't win how do you cope because there'll be people listening to this now that no doubt there's been big shifts in the paradigms of working and um i think there's been definitely mental health struggles throughout lockdown and they will go beyond that and some people will be just trying to adjust to the new world and to what's expected of them. And they want to get out back out there and back out winning. How do they do that? And if it doesn't come easily, because it's certainly only one person can win. There's lots of other loops. Exactly. You know, and, and, you know, I've, I've lost more races than I've won. It's just a fact of life. And I think this, you know, almost goes full circle back to, you know, not having this, you know, I'm not neurotypical. I've got a few of the leaves of a bit of autism, focus, whatever we might want to call it. And I think it's very easy to put labels on, but certainly, you know, I didn't, A, I hate losing. I'm a really bad loser. I hate it. Even if it's Monopoly, I don't like it. But I have the, the I have a thing where I just go, right, next, next one. And, and, so someone asked me a question the other day about, you know, what's it like to win a race and stuff. And honestly, 
it lasts a few minutes because the, the really sexy bit is doing it, is in the moment. When it's over, it's gone. And it literally, within, before I've got back to part from A, I'm thinking about next thing. It's just, it's, it's happened. And, 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 and I think that's, I think you need to have that ability to, to not dwell on stuff. You, you've got to intensely hate losing uh, and hate not putting in a performance and not doing your best. Uh, but you've not got to get caught up on, you know, the bad feelings of failure. You've just got, you know, you run at the wall, you smack into it, you fall over, you pick yourself up, you run again. And you keep doing it until the wall eventually, you might be covered in bruises, you know what I mean? But you keep doing it. And actually, it's, it's, it's that analogy which I think is the differentiator between those that do and those that don't. It's not because they're not talented, you know, it's because the ones that really want it will go to the nth degree and just keep going and keep going and keep going. And, you know, I firmly believe you can have whatever you want in this world. You can achieve whatever. you just got to want it really insanely, insanely. And then you can achieve it. You know, I remember as a kid, I was given a book by, by, by my dad. Oh, and I was only, what, 10, something like that. And it was by Richard Bach, and it's Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Have you ever heard of that book? Yeah, of course. It's an amazing book. And you know what, that, that is really dear to my heart, that, because there's lots of hidden messages in there. Um, yeah. So, you know, you just got, you know, like, like when I woke up full of hell and went the doorstep Frank. Had I not done that, we wouldn't be speaking. I wouldn't have had a career. Um, just, yeah, tell us the story about doorstepping Frank. <laughs> Do you know what? I, I'd worked really hard in 06, and, and I'd said, said to myself, look, this is it, JP. If it works after this, great. If it doesn't, mate, you've just got to think of something else. Anyway, the spider thing was great. Won pretty much most of the races. Won a test with Williams. And that was the whole reason why I did the spider thing was because there was a prize. Whoever won the championship got a test with the touring car, with the touring car team. I knew that Will Hoy was out of contract. Rano had informed me that. So there was an opportunity. Anyway, I did the test, did great. Went, had a meeting with Frank, had an interview with him. That went well. And then literally within a few days, got a letter from Frank just saying, thanks. Um, honestly, we've got to come clean. You, the drive's not yours, uh, but just so, so you know, you couldn't have done any better. The drive couldn't have been yours because we need someone with profile. So we're going to take an XF1 driver or we're going to use our test driver, uh, which was either going to be Jean uh, uh, Morbidet Deli or Jean Christophe Boulot. Well, that didn't go down very well. And it must have been about two weeks afterwards, I woke up one morning absolutely full of hell and thought no means and because i've been there a couple of weeks before I thought, i'm gonna go down and see, see frank so because i've kind of ch charmed the security guards they let me in you know the, the receptionist remembered me uh can i see frank yeah have a seat and then 15 20 minutes later nicola at the time is really scary frightening pa came down and just said, what on earth are you doing? And, you know, and I begged and begged and begged, and she let out one bit of crucial information. She said, you're wasting your time. He's not even here until lunchtime. 
and this was now 10 o'clock. And that gave me every reason to, 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 to give in, but have another go. And I, I waited in the car park until he arrived and chased after him and, and, and begged him for a five minutes of his time. And he gave me five minute minutes and, and it was all a bit of a blur, but I, you know, I banged on this table and said, look, please, please give me a chance. You know, this is a big step for me. I'm not a failed F1 driver. You know, just give me a go. And I got a phone call a week afterwards and he said, right, there's a test at Snetterton. It's you, Chris, uh, you, Morbid Adelian, and Boo Bouillon. You all get the same amount of kit, same time in the car, same tyres, fastest man gets the job. Here we are. But had I not got, had I not got out of bed full of rage, that was it. That was, it was over. So yeah, it can happen. You just, you just need to be a bit mad. In the Pink and Bows want to support you in whatever way we can during these uncertain and constantly evolving times. So we're giving away more noise-cancelling headphones to bring some added calm to your life. To win the headphones, just tag in the three friends you're most looking forward to reconnecting with once lockdown is fully lifted. Always include the hashtag Bose, and those headphones could be yours. Good luck and stay connected. About the book, How Not to Be a Professional Racing Driver, <coughs> tell me about the process of writing it because it's a lot of fun. It reflects you brilliantly. Did you enjoy doing it? Was, um, was it quite nice kind of reflecting, looking back, reminiscing, sharing anecdotes? Yeah, the book, um, do you know what? It was a really great experience. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, you know, I had quite a bit, bit of help. Um, but it was, it was, you know, really cathartic, actually, because, you know, you mentioned it earlier, I've driven for quite a lot of teams, and, you know, the, the weird thing is, the paddock, even though, you know this from F1, paddock, even though it's quite a small place, it's quite an odd place, in that everybody's working. No one's really shooting the breeze. Um... And when I arrive at the paddock, you know, I go straight into meetings with engineers or whatever it may be, and then I'm in the car, and I get out, and I'm with the engineers again. So you never really see anybody else other than you might pass them on your way to the loo or, or whatever. So, of course, you leave a team, and there's 30-odd people there that were your buddies, and then you go and drive for the enemy, and then all of a sudden they become the enemy. And you just kind of move on and you don't speak to these people again, otherwise you might wave. But, and of course, you know, you go up, the, up and down the pit lane, move from team to team. There's probably a hundred people that have, you haven't discarded, but you kind of have because they're the enemy. And this really gave me an opportunity to kind of sit down and think about all the fun, really good people that I've worked with over the years. And it brought back some proper moments where I'd just be, you know, making some notes. I just burst out laughing like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, mate, how are you? So I've actually rekindled quite a lot of um, friendships with, you know, mechanics, engineers, um, uh, you know, team managers. I'm actually, actually, it's been really great, actually. I've really enjoyed that. Uh, yeah, but it was, you know, the difficult, the, one of the most difficult things was deciding what went in and what was thrown on the floor. Because once we'd, yeah, a guy called James Hogg kind of helped me write it and was kind of like the editor. And he, I would just dump it all on him. And he'd kind of build a structure and he'd go, well, do you know what? That story, oh, that's great. We're going to bin that. Because I'm like, oh, no, no, don't do that. And there were so many. 
I mean, I reckon we had a thousand pages before we started to, to, to bin stuff, and it ended up at 300 and something. So there's an awful lot of stuff which didn't make the cut. Um, and that in itself is a difficult thing, because then you think, oh, Jesus Christ, I need to mention this person, because they're really important. But there's only one story, and it's not, not made the cut. So that's been a bit, a bit awkward. And the other thing was deciding what pictures. I had thousands, and they went, no, no, you can only have, like, 15. What? But it was a really great experience, and I wanted it to be a book which was different to a lot of other sports autobiographies, in that it wasn't about statistics and this and that, because that's pretty dull. I wanted it to be about, you know, a lot of the mistakes I've made and the fun I've had along the way and all the crazy daft things we get up to with, with also a bit of motor racing chucked in. And it, I, I wanted it to appeal to the man in the pub or the woman in the pub or wherever that is not really into motorsport, but their mate is and they've read it and gone, you're like this. And hopefully, hopefully we, we've, you know, we've gone some way to achieve that. Definitely. Well, one of the stories that did make the cut that I particularly enjoyed was the naked plane flying <laughs> with your gorgeous wife. Oh, the funniest thing was when Soph read um, a kind of like this, I think it was like the third, I didn't want anyone to read anything until we got to a point where it was nearly there. And even then I was... I had reservations about it because, you know, the guy who helped me, James, said, look, my advice is don't let anyone read it because they might not like a story and they might not see it the way you do and they might try and convince you to take it out. Anyway, I, I, I did let Soph read a, a few chapters and I let her read that bit and she went, I don't remember that. I said, oh, come on. I said, and she was literally trying to kid me that she couldn't remember it. So yeah, I used to have a little, you know, I had a little plane and we used to fly around all over the place. And I came up with this idea one day that we'd, um, you know, we'd get in the plane. It was effectively called Love Air. We'd get in the plane and as soon as we got in, I said, right, when the engine starts, we're naked. And when the engine stops, well, then we put our clothes on. And it was a bit of a dare and we were flying up to Leeds to go and see some friends. And we did it. And it was absolutely hilarious. Because where, where, when you're what they call P1 in control, you sit on the left seat and then the passenger, or will be the co-pilot, would sit on the right. But as we're taxiing out of Oxford, the, the runway you most taxi, you go out to is the, is the, the southern facing r r runway, which means you pass the control tower on the right hand side and they can't see the pilot. They can only see the person. So, and they don't normally look because it's me, I'm on my own. So I had a little bit of banter on the radio before Sophie put her cans on. And um, basically, I can't, I can't remember what I said, but I basically made them look over. <laughs> and, I, and as they were reading back my clearance to depart, my departure clearance, I, I just heard this, this pause. And then he turned around the, the controls were, are you having a laugh? <laughs> and I said, no, we're playing, we're playing a game. And, uh, and then as Soph put the headset on, she kind of heard the back end of the conversation. I, but it's still none wiser. And they were up like, bloody hell, yeah. <laughs> Talking of I cans, play. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Sophie, I can't believe that. So basically, you stitched her up, she got naked, and she was the only one that was seen. 
Yeah, I mean, I was naked too, obviously, but I, but no one saw me. But no one saw you. And no one would want to either, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, but the funny thing is, when, when we taxied in, because obviously the deal is you can't, you can't get closed until the engine's off. Well, when you go to the little, like the, the, the exec bit of the terminal, which is where the private stuff goes, it leads, it's away from the big terminal, and, and there's a bloke with his tennis bats waving you onto the, onto the, onto the apron. And now he's, and you know, when, when, when he stops, when, when he does that, he's about where you are. That's where he is running the propeller. He go, and I remember him going. <laughs> you know, we all sat there bare chested, so sat there like, like, like that. And he came to walk around and went, no, 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 best you go away. <laughs> oh my God. We got a couple of naturists. Oh yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. That Listen, thing. thank you so much for your time. Anyone who hasn't done so should get out there and buy a copy of How Not to Be a Professional Racing Driver because it's, as you can imagine from listening to this podcast, a lot of fun. Jason Plato, thank you for your time. Ah, oh, Nats, thank you. It's been great fun. I've enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Mr. Plato. Thank you for your time and your boundless energy and all those brilliant anecdotes. There are plenty more of them in his books. If you haven't read it, you really should. Uh, He is a joy to be around and a joy to chat to. So thank you for your time, Jason. Okay, loads more great guests on the way on In The Pink. And we are still giving you the chance to win some of those Bose noise-cancelling headphones. All you have to do is tag in a couple of your mates who you're most looking forward to reconnecting with in the coming days and weeks after lockdown and add the hashtag Bose. Also, just tell us who else you want to hear from because we love your feedback here on In The Pink. So until then, look after yourselves and each other and stay healthy and connected and we'll see you very soon back here on In The Pink. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.